By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Muniland, the podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels, from Moody's U.S. public finance team in New York. As home prices soared during the pandemic, attention increasingly turned to the affordable housing shortage, a crisis with negative credit implications if, for example, key workers such as teachers and nurses can't afford to live in a particular place. It's a national issue for governments both big and small. Last year, Chicago announced a $1 billion investment in housing affordability, while Lake City, South Carolina, population 6,000, plans to use federal pandemic funds to try to tackle the problem. State housing finance agencies, also called HFAs, play a key role in how governments try to alleviate housing hurdles. Created by states, HFAs generally don't receive any financial support from them, but instead largely use bond funds to finance affordable housing programs. Operating in all 50 states, their credit quality is strong, though inflation and rising interest rates pose challenges. We'll talk to Rachel McDonald and Omar Uzidan of our housing team about HFA's prospects in the current economic environment. But first. State revenue increased so fast, somewhat surprisingly, during the pandemic that the growth can only slow. And on the other side of the ledger, costs for labor and infrastructure are rising. So what does this mean for states' credit, particularly if a severe economic tailspin or even a recession takes hold? Let's turn to states' analysts, Sunny Zhu and Pizé Chia, for their thoughts. Sunny and Pizé, welcome to Muniland. Hi, Nick. Thrilled to be here. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having us. Sunny, let's start with you. States not only dodged a potential revenue hit from the pandemic, their tax collections soared. But now there's at least some gloom out there with inflation and rising interest rates. So what's the revenue picture for states? We expect revenue growth to really slow down for the sector or even decline on a real basis. It's not news to anyone. Rising costs are weighing on consumer and business spending, and these will be felt by state revenues. Also, if you think about it, some of the record revenue growth states have seen were driven by one-time factors. You know, people spending on extra savings after staying at home for months due to the pandemic from federal stimulus checks or strong stock market return. And those have all ended, so state revenues could actually come down from a temporary peak. A number of states are also cutting taxes to give back large surpluses or to help residents cope with rising costs. And these will, of course, reduce revenue growth. I was also just checking July and August revenue collection reports for a couple of states and saw that several have reported growth rates in the low single digit from a year ago, so below inflation rate. My home state of California actually reported revenue collection to be below forecast by a sizable 12% for the first month of the fiscal year. Okay, so that's the revenue side of things. What about the expenditure side? Because we know that states are facing wage pressure from employees and that inflation, for example, is driving the cost of infrastructure investment higher. Yes, 
states not only face wage pressure from their direct employees, but also the labor-intensive K-12 and higher education sector, which combined is the largest spending item for states that make up around 45% of the collective spending of the sector. So public employee wage growth have already lacked the private sector, and public employers really have to increase pay more to attract and retain staff. For instance, we saw New Mexico pass a bill this year to increase teachers' salary by an average of 20%, a very significant amount. You know, it's because they not only have to mitigate inflation, but to address significant teacher shortage issues the state has already seen. And when salaries go up, states have to contribute extra toward the pension fund because pensions are a function of the ending salary for public employees. The sector's second largest spending item, Medicaid, could also go up if a potential downturn increases unemployment. And we already know that the latest employment rate has been up a little bit. Lastly, on the capital side, as material and construction costs escalate, you know, some states may have to push down their capital projects if bids coming way above budget. And that could lead to growing capital backlogs. All right. So then have any of those difficulties led to credit stress for states? And how bad would things get if there is a deep and prolonged economic tailspin? Not at the moment. And we believe the sector can weather even a moderate recession for a couple of reasons. First, sales tax contribute to a large amount of most states' revenue and those provide a partial hedge against rising costs, at least nominally. What's more important is the fact that states are just sitting on record amount of reserves, so actually double the pre-pandemic level in aggregate, and they're just more prepared than ever. So we all know that states really benefit from very strong fiscal governance. You know, pretty much all states have balanced budget requirements. Most do multi-year financial planning. They track revenues closely on a monthly basis and are feeling nimble to react to revenues coming below forecasts. They have a number of tools to manage downturns besides tapping to reserves, you know, raising taxes, cutting spending, shifting costs to lower levels of government, or even borrowing for operation. And we view the sector to be you know, generally flexible because only a small amount of their spending are fixed. And we consider debt service, pension contributions, and retiree healthcare costs, or OPEP, to be fixed. All right, Pise, let's turn to you and state's ability to manage fixed costs. Like Sunny just said, debt service, pensions, and retiree health benefits. Have those actually improved and that's improved their credit? Yes, definitely. So over the last two years, as, as Sunny was mentioning, states have seen extraordinary revenue growth following the, the beginning of the pandemic when there were economic shutdowns. And with that revenue growth, states really have a higher capacity to be able to repay their long-term obligations. So we just recently published our state long-term liabilities report, which includes information on, on fixed costs. And we can see in the report and and in the data that fixed costs are declining relative to revenue for states, again, because of the extraordinary extraordinary revenue growth that states have seen over the last couple of years. Okay. And what about one of our core metrics, their debt burdens? What's happening with debt? Sure. So with debt burdens, um, from fiscal 2020 to fiscal 2021, we saw that overall state debt burdens have increased by 3.5%. This is a a moderate growth in in the overall uh, outstanding debt for states. 
Um, but again, states have better capacity to be able to repay long-term obligations like debt because of the extraordinary revenue threat that they've seen. Um, so with that revenue growth, certainly states have been issuing additional debt to be able to invest in infrastructure further and, and be able to be in a better footing in terms of their infrastructure investment. And back to fixed costs for a second. What states have higher fixed cost burdens than others? Yeah, so there are a handful of states that have much higher fixed costs. As Sunny was mentioning, overall states have lower fixed costs than what we would see, say, in the local government sector. Um, but there are a handful of states that have fixed costs that are greater than 20% of their own source revenue. And this includes Hawaii, Illinois, Connecticut, and New Jersey. And their fixed costs are greater than 20% of revenue. And this is in stark contrast to some states who have very little fixed costs. So Wyoming has 1% of own source revenue as, as fixed costs, and Nebraska has 1.5%. Um, so there's really a large difference between the states that have the highest fixed costs and those that have the lowest. Okay. Pizze and Sunny, thanks so much for joining us on MuniLand. Want to delve deeper into the most important topics in U.S. public finance? Join us for our annual conference back in person in New York on November 3rd. To register, visit moody's.com backslash U.S. Public Finance Conference. Before then, join us for a cross-sector U.S. housing briefing at our New York office on October 12th. Also visit moody's.com backslash U.S. housing briefing to register. Now to discuss how state and local governments are trying to improve housing affordability, welcome to Rachel McDonald, the new head of our U.S. public finance housing team, and Omar Uzidan, an analyst on that team. Rachel and Omar, welcome to Muniland. Rachel, let's start with you. Nationwide, housing affordability is a growing focus among many states and municipalities. And one way that state and local governments encourage affordable housing is through housing finance agencies, which operate in every state. So tell us what those are and what role they play in the municipal market. Thanks, Nick. So state housing finance agencies, or state HFAs as we call them, are state chartered entities that finance single family and multifamily housing loans. These loans are made either to low income, medium, low to median income home buyers or developers of affordable rental housing. In addition to state housing finance agencies, we also rate local housing finance agencies. And some of these are are quite large, like the New York City Housing Development Corporation, which is one of the largest municipal issuers. You can think of these state HFAs as mini mortgage banks, except they typically purchase the loans rather than underwriting them themselves. Okay, then. So how are those loans financed? And why are HFAs able to make loans that benefit low to median income homebuyers and renters? It's a good question. So in order to finance the loans, most HFAs issue tax-exempt bonds. Uh, they might also securitize and sell the loans through the secondary mortgage market, which is a market used by most conventional lenders. But if they use tax-exempt bonds, this gives the HFAs a lower ca cost of capital than the conventional market, and then the HFAs can pass the lower cost of capital along to the low-income borrower. Interestingly, though, the use of the tax-exempt bonds then restricts the HFAs to financing loans for first-time homebuyers who can earn no more than the area median income. And it also restricts the purchase price of the house to 90% of the average area purchase price. So these requirements keep the housing affordable. 
Also, HFAs provide the majority of their borrowers with down payment assistance and closing cost assistance in the form of either grants or forgivable loans. And this is a really important factor for a low-income home buyer because they may be able to make the monthly payment for their mortgage, but they're having real difficulty accumulating enough for a down payment. And then on the multifamily side, most of the tax-exempt bonds are paired with something called low-income housing tax credits. Um, and that is an equity contribution, which lowers the cost of capital for the developer, and then it allows the developer to keep rents affordable. Okay, that's really interesting. So on Muniland, we've talked a lot about ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And it seems like from an ESG perspective, the HFAs play a very important role in allowing access to affordable housing for people who otherwise can't afford it. Absolutely. So because the HFAs are mission-driven, they not only make affordable loans, but they're also ensuring that they're responsible lenders. For example, they only make fixed rate fully amortizing loans, and that turned out to be very beneficial to their borrowers during the housing and financial crisis. And in addition to that, most HFAs require homebuyer education prior to the individual receiving the loan. And that way, the borrower understands the loan terms and the repayment requirements, and they're more likely to take on a loan that they can afford. In addition to lending, HFAs also receive fee income to administer a number of programs on behalf of state and federal governments. And you may have heard of some of these, like the Section 8 program, low-income housing tax credits, and then more recently during COVID, the rental and homeowner assistance programs. Okay, Omar, let's turn to you now. How are HFAs faring in the current economic environment with home prices high, mortgage rates rising, and inflation impacting borrowers? Uh, Nick, everyone is impacted, including HFAs. High home prices exacerbated by rising interest rates and inflation have deepened affordability challenges. Low and moderate income families are having difficulties keeping up with costs of living, let alone buy a home. Uh, likewise, due to high cost of construction, developers of multifamily projects are also having difficulties making affordable housing developments work. Because of all these challenges, we now expect uh, HFAs loan financing volume to decline from their 2020 and 2021 peak levels. All right, Omar, changing interest rate and mortgage rate environment impact how HFAs choose to finance their loans? Uh, certainly. The interest rates HFAs offer on their mortgage rates is tied to their tax-exempt bond rates, while the interest rates conventional lenders offer is tied to their uh, taxable rates. So the larger the difference between taxable and tax-exempt uh, interest rates, the greater the advantage of tax exemption to provide loans at below market rate. This gives HFAs a competitive edge. The low interest rate env environment of the past uh, several years has diminished the value of that tax exemption to bondholders, causing HFA's bond volume to decline and their expansion into secondary mortgage market. However, uh, now that interest rates are rising, we expect HFAs to shift and favor issuance of mortgage revenue bonds over secondary market activities. All right. So those are two different funding strategies then. So how do they impact HFA's credit themselves? 
Nick, that's a really good question that we often get asked. The benefit of secondary mortgage market, which are short-term transactions, is that an HFA can originate more loans and earn income than is available from bond issuance. The income, however, is more volatile and vulnerable to market disruptions. In contrast, the benefit of tax-exempt financing is, again, that competitive uh, advantage over mainstream lenders and the opportunity to add loans to their balance sheet and generate ongoing and more predictable income. Both financing strategies have been useful to HFAs, and in our view, those HFAs that are well-versed in both are better equipped to quickly address changing market conditions. All right. So then from a credit perspective, where do HFAs stand in the current economic environment? HFAs are resilient and have strong management and financial metrics. Uh, and again, next, this might come as a surprise, uh, but current economic situation is actually positive for existing loan portfolios. Three reasons why. One, home price appreciations increase existing borrowers' equity in their home, incentivizing them to stay current on their mortgage payment or to sell the home to avoid foreclosure, clearly reducing potential loan losses for the HFA. Two, uh, due to housing shortage, particularly at the low end of the market, demand for af- affordable rents is very high, supporting strong performance from existing multifamily projects. And three, HFAs carry a significant amount of investments on their books. So as rates rise, their investments earning increase, boosting their margins. All right. And Omar, one last question. Through the pandemic and now as inflation is rising, have loan delinquencies risen? None as of yet. In fact, delinquencies have been going down because a lot of loans have exited COVID-related forbearance. And this is good news for HFAs because it creates room to absorb potential delinquencies due to inflation. We also expect high home equity, particularly uh, for H portfolios, to continue to support loan performance going forward. All right. Omar and Rachel, thanks so much. That's all for now from Muniland. I'm Nick Samuels. Join us the second Thursday of every month. We'll talk with you then. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.